I'm calling today's word, You Are Not Alone. And we're reading from the book of Acts, chapter 27, and we'll go on into 28. In verse 1, we read, Paul finally leaves Caesarea and starts his voyage of some 2,700 kilometres to Rome, along with Luke and Aristarchus, and there were other prisoners, all in the custody of a Roman imperial guard named Julius. They battled headwinds, and they landed at Smyrna on the coast of Turkey, and from there they sailed for Italy, and they struck heavy winds again along the southern coast of Crete, finally arriving at Fair Havens and staying there for several days. And Paul spoke to the ship's officers about the weather being dangerous. He said this is too dangerous for long voyages. And he believed there would be trouble ahead if they went on. Perhaps shipwreck, loss of cargo, injuries and death. But the officers in charge of the prisoners took advice from the ship's captain and the owner to go further up the coast to a safe harbour called Phoenix for the winter. Then a light wind began blowing from the south. So they decided to sail along close to the shore for safety. But abruptly the weather changed and a heavy wind of typhoon strength, a northeaster, caught the ship and blew it out to sea. They tried to face back to shore but they couldn't. So they gave up and they let the ship run before the storm and sail behind a small island and hoisted aboard the lifeboat that was being towed behind them, binding the ship with ropes to strengthen the hull. The next day, as the seas grew higher, the crew began throwing the cargo overboard, all the tackle and anything else they could lay their hands on. But the terrible storm raged on until at last all hope was gone. But finally, Paul called the crew together and said, Men, you should have listened to me in the first place and not left fair havens. You would have avoided all of this injury and loss. But cheer up, not one of us will lose our lives, even though the ship will go down. For last night, an angel of God, the God to whom I belong, and the God whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul, for you will surely stand trial before Caesar. What's more, God has granted your request and will save the lives of all those sailing with you. So take courage, for I believe God. It will be just as he said, but we will be shipwrecked on an island. The storm hurled them along for two weeks on the Adriatic Sea, and they were convinced that they would soon be driven ashore and dashed upon the rocks along the coast. So they threw out four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. Some of the sailors planned to abandon the ship and lower the lifeboat, but Paul told the soldiers and crew that they would all die unless everyone stayed aboard. Paul had a word from God and he's included everybody in it and he's gonna keep them in his word of faith. Isn't that interesting? So the soldiers cut the ropes and let the lifeboat fall off and Paul begged everyone then to eat. You haven't touched food for two weeks, he said. Please eat something now for your own good, for not a hair of your heads 
shall perish. Paul took some hard-baked bread loaf and gave thanks to God before them all and ate a piece of it. Suddenly their spirits lifted and they began eating, prisoners and soldiers and crew, all 276 of them. And they lightened the ship further by throwing the entire wheat cargo overboard. When it was day, they didn't recognise the coastline, but noticed a bay with a beach. And cutting off the anchors and leaving them in the sea, they lowered the rudders and raised the foresail. But the ship hit a sandbar and ran aground and began to break apart. It was a good thing they had Paul's prophecy there, wasn't it? You can imagine the owners of the ship thinking, what was the point of getting on this boat? We've lost our cargo. He didn't know that God had a point. God had a purpose to get Paul somewhere. It wasn't to do with the plans of people of the world. It was to do with God, with his plan and purpose. The soldiers advised their commanding officer to let them kill the prisoners, lest any of them swim ashore and escape. But Julius wanted to spare Paul. So he told them no. Then he ordered them all to jump overboard and make for land, some swimming and some clinging to planks and debris from the broken ship, and everyone escaped safely to the shore. They soon learned that they were on the island of Malta, and the people of the island were very kind to them, building a bonfire on the beach to welcome and warm them all because of all the rain and cold. But as Paul gathered an armful of sticks to lay on the fire, a poisonous snake, driven out by the heat, latched onto his hand, and when the people of the island saw it hanging there, they said to each other that Paul must have been a murderer who may have escaped drowning in the sea, but justice would not permit him to live. But Paul shook off the snake into the fire and was unharmed, and all the people waited for him to begin swelling or suddenly fall dead. But when after a long time no harm came to him, they changed their minds and decided he was a god. Publius, the governor of the island, lived on a large estate and welcomed everyone to stay on the property and kindly fed them all for three days. Publius's father had become ill with fever and a severe stomach ailment, so Paul went in and prayed for him and laid hands on him and the man was healed. Then all the other sick people on the island came and received healing. And three months after the shipwreck, when the time came to sail, People gave them gifts and provisions for their voyage. They were able to sail onto Rome on an Alexandrian ship called the Twin Brothers, which had wintered at the island. When they disembarked at Puteoli in Italy, with Paul still under guard, they found some Christians and stayed with them for seven days. And then on the way to Rome, Paul and his companions met more Christians at the Forum on the Appian Way, where he prayed with them and gave thanks to God. Paul then went on into Rome. When he arrived, he was permitted to live wherever he wanted to, but still under house arrest. Then three days after his arrival, he called together the local Jewish leaders and spoke to them and told them about the charges that the Jewish leaders had accused him of in Caesarea and of his defence and his innocence and also that he'd appealed to Caesar. Paul went on to tell them 
that it was because he believed that the Messiah Jesus had come that he was still under guard as a prisoner. They replied to Paul that they hadn't heard any reports about him, neither from those arriving from Jerusalem nor any letters from Judea. They said they simply wanted to hear what he believed and that the only thing they knew about these Christians was that they are being denounced everywhere. So Paul invited them to come to his house and they came in large numbers and he spoke to them all day and into the night about the kingdom of God. He taught them about Jesus from the scriptures, from the books of Moses and the books of the prophets and there were many arguments and only some believed. But the word was sown. Paul finally ended his meetings with them and that was the series of meetings, by quoting Isaiah. Say to the Jews, you will hear and see but not understand. For your hearts are too hard and your ears don't listen and you've closed your eyes against understanding. For you don't want to see and hear and understand and turn to me to heal you. That's a mystery of the resistance of the blindness of the heart and the mind. That's what you will see. I call that the Isaiah principle. You say, we're not doing enough of the sharing of the word. You probably are. And this word can apply. The more you say it, the more people might say, no thanks. It's up to each person's heart to come into a place of grace. And your grace and your faith, I believe, can usher in that opening door of people's hearts. Stay in faith. You'll know when you're speaking words of life, you'll know they're getting into the heart. Put it in God's hands. Don't be discouraged. Let God bring opportunities. He is our future. Our future is coming to us. We cannot really predict or even plan fully our future. We know that. But we know it's coming. And where's it coming from? It's coming from God's plan for us. In this hour, in this day, in this world, with everything that's going on. Even more so, as we gather faith in our hearts and say, Lord, thank you for giving me the word of life that I can hold for. Thank you for bringing the person to me. Your hope in me. So he told them all this, and he said that the salvation from God that he was talking about was available to the Gentiles, and they would accept it. Some would, and some wouldn't, but this was like a curtain coming down for Paul's beloved Israel. Paul lived for the next two years under guard in his rented house in Rome and welcomed all who visited him telling them with all boldness about the kingdom of God and about the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one tried to stop him. And later on, during his time in Rome, Paul wrote the second letter to Timothy, who was in Ephesus, and told him he was ready to go and be with the Lord. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, Paul writes to Timothy, I'm prepared for my lifeblood to be poured out, and the time of being loosed from this life is close. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And finally, 
the crown of righteousness awaits me, which the Lord, the right and true judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have lovingly desired to see him. What is the crown of righteousness? And how was Paul able to receive that crown? Now, righteousness means living in spiritual uprightness in alignment with God and living in truth before God. He tells us that after fighting a good fight against spiritual darkness, that was his fight, and finishing the race with endurance that he tells us to do, he had to keep the faith. And to do this, he had to look to Jesus, whom he writes about in the book of Hebrews as the author and finisher of our faith. He says, run the race with patience, looking unto Jesus. And he tells us that we are all included, each in our own circumstances and each in our own spiritual struggles to receive our crowns also. He sums it up as being a spiritual struggle of faith because he knew that none of us could gain that spiritual uprightness through our own works, the crown of righteousness. He'd like that. And he says to us, not having my own righteousness, which is from my ability to perfectly obey the law, but the righteousness, which is from God through faith in Christ. He says that in Philippians. Over and over again, Paul was able to help people understand the difference between our works and the works of the grace of God through us for him to work. And he trusted that despite his limitations and his failures, no matter. All his religious life, Paul had wanted to be spiritually upright. He wanted to be a righteous man, Pharisee of the Pharisees. But in his natural human spirit, he had always failed or fallen short until when he experienced the power of the spirit of life of Christ within him. He saw he wasn't alone in this struggle. Now that's the key point. We struggle. The worst thing that you can feel when you're in a struggle is that you're on your own. He saw his only spiritual struggle was trusting in the Holy Spirit to come and change his heart. And he encourages us that we are not alone in this either. That our only spiritual struggle is trusting in God to change our hearts so that we can desire with the heart to let the works of God through us, his righteousness, is in us waiting to be lived out. That's what that means, to have the righteousness of Christ. It's not copying him as hard as you can, which wouldn't do anybody any harm anyway. They try. The Bible tells us what that work of spiritual uprightness and truth brings. We read from Isaiah 32, and this is what is brought about in us. The work of righteousness shall be peace. That was our prayer this morning. And the effect of righteousness is quietness and assurance forever. So Isaiah 32. The peace is within us. 
It does not come from circumstances. Otherwise, we could never have peace. You do get something when you battle through in your circumstances and win, even competing against others, you get something that you can say is peace, it's relief. You've gotten through your own way. Oh, what a relief. That's not peace. See, we can't get the peace unless it's the one that God gives. My peace I give you. We'd always feel stranded and unsure and alone. Even the relief is temporary. Now I've got to do it all again. But he tells us we will never feel alone and stranded. The crown of peace upon our head means that just by thinking, it's on your head, just by thinking of his nearness, we have the quietness and assurance. The work of righteousness is peace and quietness and assurance forever. And that quietness and assurance is the assurance that he is near. Think about the nearness and his near. Jesus said to us, in me you will have peace, but in the world you will have trouble. I've overcome the world. So be glad and joyful, that's John 16. His overcoming puts the world's power underneath us. It's not us against the world's power, it is over coming and the world's power is underneath and we in a, are in another zone <laughs> with a different power. The world destroys peace among mankind and seeks the world's power to overcome and put others down, put all obstacles down. But nothing that the world does to destroy peace in the way that they do can take the peace and assurance from our hearts and minds. We've been lifted above it. Because by faith we can experience being lifted up into his power, far above all other principalities and powers. We're seated with him in that place. That's the power of that glorious crown of peace that awaits us, but by faith, we can touch that, live with that crown, have it becoming shaped upon our head so that in our minds we can know that as we simply, by the renewing of our minds, believe and have the truth, live by that truth that we have his uprightness and powerful working, wanting to work through us. And as we believe that, then the crown seats itself upon our head. In our minds we know, and we know he's near, and then in our hearts he is near. He's dwelling there and working there through us. Amen.